morning. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you're not used to reading the Bible, uh, you can find the books uh, where they're listed in the front of the Bible in the index. Chapter numbers are the big numbers. Verse numbers are the little numbers. If you're a note taker, I have five points for you in this morning's sermon. I'll give them to you now and then give them to you again as we work through it. Point number one, love. Point number two, obedience. Point number three, our work. Point number four, fear. And point number five, God's work. Let's read the text, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into God's word together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you (laughs) eager, ready, ready to hear from you, God. It's been a long week, and we have been hearing so many voices that are not leading us into the truth. We've been at war trying to preach the gospel to ourselves, trying to remind ourselves of the truth of your word. We have in so many ways failed to take the measures that we should to empower us to do that. We haven't prayed like we should. We haven't fellowshiped as much as we possibly could have, and we have not uh, been in your word, Lord. It's there. It's available to us all the time. You are ready and willing to speak to us, and so often we, we choose to listen to the voice of this world, but here you have us now, gathered together under your authority, We know that your spirit is present with us. So, Lord, we pray that he will minister to us as a congregation this morning. Holy Spirit, take the word of the Lord Jesus Christ and work it deep into our souls. We pray this in his most holy name. Amen. Point number one, love. Uh, so this is the part of the sermon where I'm telling you that I'm going to do my best not to cry, right? Nothing worse than a grown man standing up in front of a room full of people just crying, right? But as I begin to unpack the truths of this morning's sermon, I want to tell you how much I love you. It seems like a weird way to start uh, a sermon, but I'm starting my sermon like that because, well, there's two reasons. Number one, because I mean it. And number two, because love is where Paul begins in this morning's text. Paul begins this next little chunk of teaching in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, with this phrase. He says, therefore, which is connecting the previous little chunk of text with what he's going to say in this morning's text. Therefore, my beloved. So he's talking to the Philippians and he's using this term of affection. And it's a term of significant affection. Uh, The word beloved is how God referred to his chosen children, Israel, in the Old Testament. It's the word that God uses over and over again to refer to his precious bride in the book uh, of the Song of Solomon. Beloved is the word that God the Father uses when referring to his son, Jesus, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When Paul wants the Corinthians to know just how much he cares for them, because, you know, he's writing this letter and getting on to them about a whole bunch of stuff. He says, you are my beloved children. The Apostle Paul is not a professor or an ivory tower theologian. He's a pastor and he's a spiritual father and his exhortation to grace empowered obedience in this morning's text is not theoretical 
It's relational. It's born of a deeply personal love for the Philippian church. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I find myself just going through the motions. Even this morning, I went to go look at the text for next morning, uh, excuse me, next week's sermon. And as I read it, I just automatically found myself doing exegesis, thinking, how am I going to plot out the sermon? What are the application points going to be? And I just had to stop and almost rebuke myself and just say, like, Lord, like, help me to love you. Help me to love your word. Help me to love the people that I'm preparing the sermon for. You know, the problem with much of our modern theology is that it's done in isolation. Outside of the loving community in the context of the local church, right? It wasn't supposed to be that way. Theology was designed by God to be a community project. We, we read together, we pray together, we sing together, we try to follow Jesus faithfully together. In the same way that uh, flesh needs a skeleton to hang onto and a house needs a frame to be built onto, theology needs to hang onto love in the context of the local church. You know, the local church is really where all of this love that we profess to have, it's where it's made visible, right? You can say, oh, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but that doesn't really mean anything if you're not in community. It's just this vague, ethereal feeling and concept. It's only in the local church that you actually begin to see what that love looks like when we pray together and when we weep together and when we hug and hold hands and hang out, right? You see love when our children play together and our babies cry and our patience is tested and our forgiveness is given. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and when we give of our time, talent, and treasure for the sake of the body. The local church is, we, is the place where we do all of the one another's that scripture commands us to do in light of our profession of love. So... I just wanted us to hang out on this for a moment because a lot of us like to do our theology in isolation, right? Read our books, watch our YouTube videos, read articles on the internet, and we just act like it's just me and the Holy Spirit and the Bible, and that's all we need, but it's not. We need love. So let's move on to the text itself. Point number two, obedience. You'll remember that Paul is writing the Philippians because he doesn't really know how much longer he has left, right? He's in chains in Rome, and death may come for him at any time, so he writes the Philippians to help them prepare for his potential departure. And so in chapter 1 and here in chapter 2, Paul says, listen, whether I'm alive and with you or dead, and which is far better because I get to go be with Jesus, Regardless of whichever of those two scenarios happens, I want you to walk in obedience. Now, what Paul is getting at here with this obedience, even if I'm not around talk, is really the question of heartfelt obedience, right? That's what he's getting at. So just parents, think about it like this, right? If, if your children are only obedient when you're around, when you're present, when you're in the home, is that true obedience, right? You say, hey, we don't jump on the couch and we don't put a fork in the, in the toaster, right? Like, and they say, oh, got that, mom, dad, not going to do that. And then as soon as you leave, they go and jump on the couch, right? That's, that's not the kind of obedience that we're after. Same thing in our marriages, right? So husbands, if, if you can only trust your wife to be faithful to you when she's in your presence, that's not real trust, right? Uh, you can even do this in the workplace. Uh, bosses, employers, if your employees are only doing the right thing when you're around, you don't really trust that they're going to do, th right? I mean, what you want from your employees is that they do the right thing whether you're in the office or you're away on vacation, right? And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, listen, I want you to practice the kind of obedience to the Lord Jesus that I don't have to worry about whether I'm here or 
away. I just trust that you're following the Lord Jesus and you're obeying him, not because you have to, not because I'm compelling you to, not because the apostle came along and said you should do it, but because you love the Lord Jesus. You know, when Paul talks about all of his trials and tribulations, one of the things he talks about is his anxiety for the churches. Uh, One of the anxieties that I dealt with a lot as a young pastor, I'm still a young pastor, but as a younger pastor, was whether or not our people were going to, like, do the right thing when they went back out into the world. You know, we had some young Christians come in, get saved, and then they have to go back out into that scary world, and, oh, I really hope you're going to do the right thing. And eventually, you just have to learn, you just have to remember, like, I can't make them do the right thing. You can't make your children do the right thing. All you can do is train them up in the way of Christ in hope that because they love Jesus, they will want to obey even if they fail, even if they stumble in their obedience. My only hope as your pastor, the elders of this church, our only hope for you, the members of this church, that you will walk in obedience is that the spirit living in you will cause you to want to be obedient. Whether you're here gathered with us or out in your job or in your home or on vacation, we shouldn't really have to worry about your obedience because your obedience is not rooted in us. You know, this this kind of obedience that Paul is addressing here, it's really the only true obedience, which means it's the only kind of obedience that is acceptable to God, Right? In Romans 14, Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Then you go and you read the story of the Old Testament, and what do you see? You see the story of a bunch of counterfeit obedience, obedience that is not born of faith, obedience that's born of all kinds of sin. And God says, I'm not pleased with it. I don't want that. You can come into the temple and offer your sacrifices every day. I don't want your sacrifices. What I want is obedience that's born of faith and love. And that's really all Paul is saying here to the Philippians. Now, some modern readers might interpret Paul's words uncharitably in these verses, in a a harsh authoritarian light, right? They might see his words as overbearing, domineering, controlling, Right? Paul is saying, you must obey. And that, that, that grates on our, on our modern ears. But we, we have to remember that Paul is not calling for the church to obey his own personal whims and desires. Right, This isn't a cult. Paul is calling them to obey the gospel. You ever heard that phrase before? Obey the gospel? We don't, we don't use that phrase a lot. It's, it's not super common. We talk about obeying our parents, obeying the government. In religious matters, we talk about obeying God. But, but this is actually a phrase that's used uh, commonly in the New Testament. Let me just give you three quick examples. In, in Romans 10, 16, Paul says, They have not obeyed the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Lest you think this is just a Pauline trope, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So yes, Paul is an apostle, which was a position in the church that carried a very unique kind of authority with it, right? So when an apostle says, like, taps you on the shoulder and calls you to obedience, you should pay special close attention to that. But at the end of the day, Paul is really not doing anything more than kind of what we should all be doing as Christians, calling one another to obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me just make this real practical for like how this, like what this means 
for this local church, Sixth Avenue Community Church. Think about how this truth applies to your relationship with your elders. The elders of any local church have a very real spiritual authority over the congregation. That's not my idea. It's actually pretty scary. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says this, Submit to your elders. So that's real authority. It, the, the calling on you to submit, it means that your elders have real authority in your life. And yet the scope of our authority as your elders is pretty limited, right? Our authority as elders is the authority to call you to obedience. That's really it. So let's spin this out a little bit. There are some areas of your life that very obviously fall under the authority of your elders. There are other areas of your life that very obviously don't fall under the authority of your elders. And then there's a lot of gray in between, which we need a lot of wisdom to navigate. So, for example, the elders of this church have authority to tell you not to get an unlawful divorce. Okay? We have authority to counsel you to forgive someone who has sinned against you and to help you do that. We have authority to exhort you and to command you to care for the poor in your midst, to come to church on Sundays, so on and so forth. We do not, however, have authority to tell you what to eat for lunch after church, although if I have my say, it will be five guys, and if you love me, you will go. We don't have authority to tell you what to wear when you cut the grass when you go home, you know, shorts or pants, it's your decision. Safety first. But then there's this large area of gray in the middle, right? So here's an illustration, maybe an example. Let's say you're trying to decide whether or not to accept some new job out of state. And you come to the elders and you go, what should I do? The elders will say, I don't know, right? And we're probably going to ask you a lot of questions. And the questions that we ask you are going to be spiritually oriented, gospel oriented, obedience oriented, right? Questions like, where the, will there be a healthy church in the area that you're thinking about moving to? That's pretty important. Will there be a church you could join in good conscience and serve the Lord? Will this move help you to be more spiritually fruitful, right? We might even push and ask if you're just taking this job out of state to escape from problems that will just follow you when you move, right? Those are the kinds of things that we will address but at the end of the day, your elders don't really have authority to tell you whether you can like move up in middle management or take an out-of-state job. That's just beyond the pale of the authority that God has given us. What we have authority to do is to call you very clearly, very consistently, very strongly to obedience in the gospel. And so it is our prayer as elders that you would be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would let your light shine before men, and that your obedience would not be dead and pharisaical, that it would be full of light and life and joy because of what God has done for you in Christ. Now, before moving on from the subject of obedience, I want to point out one more thing here that may not be, may not be obvious. I want us to see that obedience is a non-negotiable a non-negotiable aspect of the gospel message, right? So Paul, in perhaps his last letter to his beloved Philippians, one of the final things that he says to them is, you must obey, you must obey. Jesus, his final marching orders to his disciples was, go out and teach the nations to obey, right? Right? Even when I talk to my own children about Jesus, what I want for them, obviously, is that they love Jesus and that they put all of their trust in Jesus. But I also talk to them about our, their obedience and I say, hey, listen, you can know that you're not self-deceived, you know, pastor's kid living in Decatur, Alabama, about your faith if you actually walk in obedience. And that's not like my litmus test. That's just what the Bible says. Second John chapter 1, verse 6. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. How do you know that you really love God and that you're not self-deceived? Well, a pretty good indicator is that you like joyfully obey him. Sometimes in our circles, if, if we're not careful, we can talk about grace in such a way 
as to make it seem like grace does away with the need for obedience. Right? That's what Will was praying about in his prayer of confession. This is wrong. It's, it's dangerously wrong. It's dead wrong. Grace grants us forgiveness for when we fail to obey, but it also empowers us to grow in our capacity for obedience. More on that in point four. For now, let's go to point three, our work. In verse 12, Paul connects our obedience with our salvation. Look there with me. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So here's the question we have to ask in point three, and it's a simple one. Does work out your salvation equal work for your salvation? Right? That's what he says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is that the same thing as work for your salvation with fear and trembling? And the answer, as most of you well-trained gospel believers have been, you know, shaking your head at is, Obviously, no. Scripture is abundantly clear that salvation is by grace alone and not by works. And I just, we just need to review this. Anytime this comes up, it's a good reminder because our natural tendency is to move towards legalism and to move towards works-based righteousness. So any chance God gives us just to remind ourselves how foolish that is, we should take him up on it. So uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see the contrast there, right? It's between faith and works. And faith cannot be worked because he says that salvation is to the one who does not work. Let's go to uh, the book of Ephesians. Let's just flip over real quick. Just right before the book of Philippians, just flip back. We're just going to look at five verses together in rapid fire, starting in chapter 1. And if you'd like to mark up your Bibles, this would be a a good time to, to do some highlighting or some circling. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him, that is, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right? So our inheritance is not owing to our work. It's owing to his work. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. Kind of starting in in the middle of a sentence there, Paul says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, right? So the power of salvation that comes to us and works salvation in us, it's according to his work, not our work. Let's go a little bit further. Chapter 1, verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So you were dead in sin, and the power that raised you from the spiritual grave is the same power that raised Christ from the physical grave. That's what saves you. That's the work that saves. Go to chapter 2, verse 9. Just in case you were wondering if you tried to make this somehow, some way compatible with works, Paul says this is not a result of works, meaning your works. Why? So that no one may boast. I'm going to try not to just go off on a tangent here and preach another 45 minutes on this. But your propensity is to boast in your own power, which is stupid because you have none. So the Bible just falls down all over itself to tell you that you can't be saved by your own work. You can only be saved by God's work. So don't gloat in yourself, glory in Him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, just one one more verse. For 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's this image of God as like this craftsman, and he's doing this work. And oh, by the way, you're the project. His work creates you, the saved you, the being sanctified you, the glorified you. He works you. And then it says that even the good works you do are something that he worked in you, that he prepared in advance, like he had out the blueprints the whole time, right? So if you think, oh, Sean, I I couldn't even begin to think of myself as having worked for my own salvation, but the good works that I do after I get saved, I get some credit for that. Not really. I mean, you get credit in the same way maybe someone who, like, does a drawing, but they just go over a stencil, you know? Like, yeah, you put the pencil to paper, but, like, you didn't, you didn't design that, right? God prepared that in advance. And finally, just for the utmost clarity, Romans 11, God says this, But if salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So if you have a definition of grace that somehow, some way involves even a little bit of works to contribute to grace, you've completely lost the concept of grace. So, it seems like work out your salvation in verse 12 cannot mean work for your salvation. Because the same guy who wrote verse 12 wrote all those other verses like who was at pains to let you know that you can't work for your salvation. So that leads us to the question, what does it mean to work out your salvation? Here's the answer, nice and simple. It means to confirm your salvation. I have this in in my Bible, in my study, just where it says work out, I just put a little, little line and then I wrote the words to confirm. And I could show you this from several places in Scripture, but for now, I just want to show you two verses, okay? Uh, turn with me to Second Peter. Save your place in Philippians. Let's go to Second Peter. Way in the back there, chapter 1. Second Peter, chapter 1. Verse 10. Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, so this is important, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Right? Calling and election, of course, refers to that aspect of God's sovereign grace and salvation. And Peter says, Listen, it's one thing to say that you are elect, to say that you've been called by God, but how do you know that you're right in that belief? How do you know that your perception is not wrong? Well, what you have to do is you have to be diligent to confirm that. You have to examine your life. You have to examine your fruit. You have to examine your obedience and say, does this line up with what we would expect of someone who is called and chosen of God? Right? An illustration of this would be... um, if, if I were to show up, like when I lived in Peru, if I would have shown up at the front gate of the U.S. Embassy there and said, uh, I'm a citizen, right? They would have said, great, show me your passport and we'll let you come on in, right? We'll, we'll, we'll admit you back into the country, right? Now, me showing that passport does not make me a citizen. It merely confirms the fact that I am a citizen, right? In the same way, our good works, our obedience does not make us a Christian, but it serves as the validation, the confirmation that we actually do belong to Christ. This is all like heady and theological, but it shouldn't be that complicated, right? Like if we all know that if someone says, I follow Jesus, and they go out and live in like crazy, outright, unrepentant sin, that there's something off there. Another place that we can turn to is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Flip over there with me. Uh, 
Look at in verse 5. Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Right? Great, profess to be a Christian, profess to have faith, but be diligent, test yourself to see if that faith is real. You guys remember when we walked through the Gospel of John? It seemed like I preached the same sermon week in and week out. Why? Because the whole Gospel of John is just a bunch of people saying, Jesus, we like you, we're going to follow you, we're on Team Jesus. And then something hard happens, something scary happens. Jesus has a teaching that they don't like, and then they disappear. They fail the test. You can also think about this in light of Jesus' parable of the tree and the fruit. The fruit on the tree doesn't make the tree alive. The fruit on the tree is proof that the roots are healthy, that the tree is living. In the same way, work out your salvation means look at your life, examine it, and see is there fruit here that indicates that the root is actually alive. Uh, some Christian teachers, and this, is, this tends to be found more in like the Lutheran variety, not all Lutherans, but it's pretty common there. They say that this kind of call to serious, consistent, diligent self-examination, they say it's out of sync with grace. Right? They say grace doesn't want you to examine yourself. You just need to look at the finished work of Christ on the cross and just never take your eyes off of that. The only problem with that is just not the way the Bible talks, right? The Bible says, yes, look at Christ and don't take your eye, like look at him, see his finished work. That's where all of your hope is. That's where your only hope is. But how can you know that you've actually appropriated that finished work by faith? It's only when you examine yourself. Now, some of us, we're in danger because we never really look at the cross. We just kind of glance at it, and we spend all of our time looking at ourselves through the lens of the law. And we live with guilt and fear and doubt. There's a reason why the old Puritan said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at the cross. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't look at yourself. Self-examination is part of the gospel call on our life. So you can say, examine your faith. You can say, make your calling and election sure. You can say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it's all saying the same thing. Point number four, fear. Going back to Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians. At the end of verse 12. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This, this makes a lot of sense. Um, like if I were to get up here and preach a sermon to you on hell, and I did it with a big old smile on my face, you would say that there's some incongruity, right? My emotions, my mood doesn't really match the subject matter of our time together, right? And conversely, if I was up here preaching on heaven, you know, the joys of heaven that await us with Christ our Lord forever, and I was just like weeping and sorrowful and lamenting, you'd be like, What's, th this doesn't match. We, we feel that way because we know that whenever we talk about certain subjects, there should be a mood to match that subject, right? So if we're talking about examining ourselves to see if we're deluded and self-deceived, to see if our faith is real, to see if our calling and election is what we think it is, that should have a mood about it. And that mood should not be light. It should not be playful. There should be no joking, right? It, you don't even need to think theologically to understand this, right? When, when I'm talking with my family about what we're going to have for dinner tonight. Like, oh, where, where do you want to go? Let's go out tonight. You know, mom's tired. Let's go out, right? Six nights a week. It's crazy, <laughs> right? W even just now, right? We can laugh and joke about that. Ah, oh, yeah, we went over the budget again, right? We, that's light and playful. If we're having a conversation as a family about, like, maybe a health issue or um, a family move, the conversation becomes more serious 
more contemplative. And if we're talking about, if we're having a family conversation about a child who's walked away from the Lord Jesus, there's just no room for joking. This is not the time to smile. This is not the time to laugh. This is the time to weep to get on our faces before God. There's a, reason why, there's a reason why the prophets, when they were lamenting and when they were crying out on behalf of Israel, they were in sackcloth. They would cover themselves with ashes because that's what's appropriate for the sin that's being discussed. So here's the take home for you. Be serious about serious things. Guys, this is coming from me. Right? My love language is sarcasm. Right? I remember when, um, when we were preparing to go into Iraq in my deployment in 2009, we stopped into Kuwait, and, you know, you do a lot of your processing as you prepare to go into, into theater. And uh, one of the things that they do there is they have these chaplains sit you down to try to convince you not to evangelize any of the Muslims that you come into contact with. Right? Good luck with that one. And so they have a, a Jewish, a Muslim, and a Christian, ostensibly, Christian chaplain sit you down, and they give you this big slideshow presentation, and they, they show you all these verses in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, and then in the Quran that supposedly uh, agree with each other. And, and their whole spiel to you is, we all believe the same thing. You know, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, we all believe the same thing. So if you're a Christian and you have plans to like go in there and evangelize these guys, there's really no need for it. So we get on the bus, you ride around in a bus, uh, our company gets on the bus, and I, I stand up and I just tell everyone, hey, that's not true. No Jew would say that that's true, no Muslim would say that that's true, no Christian would say that that's true. That is 100% false. It's wrong. It's a lie. And then I engaged in a very lengthy debate with my sergeant. Now, later, I heard my commander talking about that, the captain of our uh, company. And he said, you know, the only time I ever hear DeMars being serious is when he's talking about God. Now, that's, that's, that's a little bit of a problem, and hopefully I've matured a little bit from there. But I'm a, I'm a goofy, cut-up, let's-have-fun, life-is-too-hard-to-be-serious-all-the-time kind of guy. Right? Take the Lord seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. But he was right. I am serious when I'm talking about the things of the Lord, and you should be too, friends. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about eternity We're talking about the salvation of billions and billions of people. When we're talking about the gospel, it should not be a light and playful thing. When you you read the Bible, there's a reason why there is some humor in the Bible, but there's not a lot. Because the Bible is talking to us about eternally significant things. And so, we should approach it with fear and trembling. Point number five, God's work. If you have, uh, if you've been in the church long enough, you've probably had someone tell you, as you're struggling with something, to just let go and let God. I remember the first time I heard that as a young Christian, I was like, oh, that sounds good. What does it mean? Right? I still don't think anybody really knows. We we like the let go and let God theology because it makes us feel like, oh, the way that I can win this battle, the way I can get over this issue is, is to, to give it to God. But to, it means I don't have to fight because fighting's hard and it's scary and it's exhausting. The only problem with the let go and let God theology is that it's the exact opposite of the way the Bible talks to us in overcoming sin and fear and doubt and worldliness. So, Thus far in in Philippians, God has been calling us to do a lot of really difficult, basically impossible things, right? So live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in unity by having like complete, like be of one mind, the whole church one mind. Take on the mindset of Christ Jesus who exchanged his glory 
for humiliation by becoming the servant of all. You need to do that, Christian. That's what Paul is saying to us. And each one of these exhortations thus far is like a hammer blow to our misplaced confidence in the flesh. We must do these things, and yet, if you've just tried it in the last week, you know how impossible it is. So what are we to do? Do we just throw up our hands? Do we just stop trying altogether? No. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, if you're a Bible marker, I want you to go ahead and, and, and underline, circle, highlight some things. If you're not, I still want you to look at the text with me. I want you to see in verse 12 that word work, right? That's in reference to us, right? We have to work out our salvation. Circle that, underline it, highlight it. Then in verse 13, I want you to see the word work there twice, and I want you to mark it. Here's the connection I want you to see. God is calling us to work. He's calling us to the work of obedience, the work of self-examination. He's calling us to action. There's no way around it. We have to fight. We have to work hard. We have to strive. And yet, our great confidence is not in our work, but in the fact that God is working through our work. That's what verse 13 is telling us. John Piper likes to say that we work the miracle, right? Which means that we do the work, but the only reason we can do it is because God has already done the work of a miracle in our hearts to allow us and empower us to obedience. I wonder, friends, if you've ever thought about obedience in this way. My guess is that most of us, when we think about our obedience to God, our, our working, our striving, our effort, we think about it as something that we must produce from within ourselves, right? So if, if I say, hey, you need to go out and run a mile, right? You think, okay, it's up to me to get across that finish line, right? I hope you carved up with Linguini last night, right? You got to make it across the finish line. This is owing to me. And that's, that's how we think about our spiritual work. We think that our work is driven fundamentally by our will. But that's not what the Bible says. Do I sound like a broken record? Good. I don't care what some theologian said. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what your religious tradition says. I only care what God says. And God clearly in his word says that our ability to work is not driven by our will, but rather by God's will. And this is not the only place where Paul talks like this. If, if, if this was the only place, then we would say, oh, I don't know if that's exactly right. Maybe you're not reading the Greek properly, or maybe you're taking it out of context. But Paul talks like this all over the place. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. It's right after Philippians. Colossians 1.29. <clears throat> We're going to take this slowly. Paul says, for this I toil. Notice, who's, and what does toil mean? It means to work, to strive, to fight. It's hard. It's not easy. And who's doing the toiling? Paul. For this I toil, struggling with what? With all of his, with all of his own might? No, with all of his might. That's God's might and energy. That he powerfully works. That's the same idea from Philippians 2.13, that he powerfully works within me. You see, when, when, God think, when, when Paul thinks of God working his miraculous power in and through him, he doesn't go, oh, therefore, I don't work. He doesn't say, oh, well, logically, that's difficult to reconcile. So, okay, if God is working in me, then therefore I must not be working. He has no problem in the same sentence, in the same breath, saying, I toil, I struggle because he toils and struggles in me. I work because he works in me. Let's look at another verse. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
starting in verse 16. Paul says, but thanks be to God. So notice who gets the credit here. God gets the credit. Who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest. Pause. Who put into the heart of Titus his earnestness? God did. And then it says, who himself was very earnest. It says, he is going to you of his own accord. What? Of his own accord? Because he willed it? Because he desired it? Paul, you just said that the reason why he had this earnest care and desire for them was because God put it in his heart. Friends, Logic comes from God. It's one of his attributes. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be logical. I'm saying sometimes our fallen human logic gets in the way of the plain reading of the Bible. Which means that sometimes there's something in you that will make you say, well, no, if, if God does it, then it can't be for me. But that's just not the way God talks. Both can be true. Two more verses. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So all owing to God, all glory to him, no credit to me. It's only by his grace. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I work, I strive, I toil, I labor, I work, and yet God is working in me. One more, I'll just read it, you don't have to turn there, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought you again, excuse me, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight. Now listen, we're, we're doing good theology here, right? This is something that we could see like parsed out in a systematic theology textbook, the section on the freedom of the human will and the sovereignty of God's will. And all that's good and it's necessary and it's important and it's true. But you're going to miss this if like you go home today and you're just like thinking in abstract theological terms, if you're just like wrestling as with like concepts and ideas, the purpose of this is to lead you to praise. That's what you see in Hebrews, right? Now, may it, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why does he get the glory? Because he's the one who's doing it in us, right? This should lead you. Remember, theology, the study of God, should always lead to doxology, the praise of God. When you learn that God sovereignly wills your good works, that should lead you to go, thank you, Lord. I praise you. Why? Because you should know that you can't do it by yourself. You're weak. You need help. Your will is insufficient to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your will is the will that can't stay on a diet for longer than a week. Your will is the will that can't stick to a budget, right? Ooh, that thing on Amazon is shiny. Budget's off this month, right? Your will is the will that says, ooh, at the beginning of every year, the Bible in a year plan, I'm doing it. 2023 is my year. You hit the last half of Exodus, it's over. Your will is fickle. Your will is weak. And then there's God. His will has never failed to come to pass. He's never faltered. He's never wavered, not even for a second. His will is perfectly pure, morally excellent, unflinching, and all-prevailing. Friends, if the idea of God's will being sovereign over your will is offensive to you, I think you've failed to understand something really important about yourself. I think you may be, in a sense, deceived. Deceived. 
I think you see yourself as stronger, smarter, holier, more disciplined than you really are. In a moment, we're going to sing, I don't think I have the handout up here with me. We're going to sing one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount. One of my favorite lines in this hymn, it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If that, if that resonates with you, then God's sovereign will over your will is going to feel like good news. If you read that lyric and you go, oh, how dare you? you you're thinking about leaving God. It could never be me. Well, then, friend, you, you may not understand the depth of your own sinfulness. You may have been a Christian for like a half a second. You may be living like a Pharisee. I think this is just a, a good note to end the sermon on. Uh, the gospel is fundamentally God-centered, right? When we need to be saved, who do we need to be saved from? God. And when we are saved, who are we saved to? And the person who saves us is who? God. Friends, everything about our salvation depends on the sovereign will of God. And that is good news. Your election and calling and adoption, the Father did those things for you in eternity's past. The forgiveness of your sins, Jesus accomplished that for you on the cross. The sealing, which will guarantee you make it to heaven, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, God is working salvation in us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're thinking like, well, Sean, what are you saying? I mean, are you saying that like God has to do something in me if I'm going to be saved? The answer is yes. And if you're thinking like, well, Sean, how do I know that God has done that thing in me? Oh, the answer to that is very simple. You will turn away from your sins and you will trust in Christ. It won't be perfect. It never is. There is only one perfect man. His name is Jesus. But you will see a change in your life. His will will reign supreme over your old sinful carnal will. And you will follow him and you will love him. And your obedience will be born of joy and love. So I pray that that will be true of you. Let's pray. Father God, even our ability to sit and listen to this sermon, which you've used to sanctify us, we trust, was because you gave us the grace. You gave us the grace to be here. You gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so we pray with hearts full of thanksgiving and we give you all of the glory knowing that you deserve it from first to last. In Jesus' name, amen.